Are you a procrastinator? Can you relate to this saying? I read this a while back. It says this, Procrastination is my sin. It brings me nothing but sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I think I will tomorrow. It's about right, isn't it? A lot of us struggle with this, with procrastination. I can honestly tell you that procrastination is not my sin. I have others, many, many others, but you can ask my, my wife or those close to me. They'll tell you that I'm actually the, the opposite to a fault. But uh, I used to be a procrastinator, and I learned my lesson in college that uh, if you put off certain tasks, you may not have time to do them later. Have you ever heard it said that hard work is often the easy work you don't do at the proper time? Very, very true, right? And I learned this the hard way. We're going to talk about procrastination today as we look at Paul on trial before Felix in Caesarea. And we're going to learn that Felix was a procrastinator. He procrastinated when it came to the ruling in the case the Jews made against the Apostle Paul, and he procrastinated in a spiritual sense when Paul shared God's gospel with him. And when we study the Bible, we see that the Bible, in fact, has a lot to say about this kind of procrastination. In Luke chapter 9, we're told, beginning in verse 59, that Jesus called for a man to follow him. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, the time to trust me is now. The time to follow me is now. The time to serve me is now. Leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. Don't put your hand to the plow and look back. The man who postpones, the one who procrastinates when it comes to trusting in Christ and following him and serving him is not fit for his kingdom. That's the point. The one who puts Christ off, the one who delays in responding to him often does not make time to do so later. Many wait until it's too late. That's why God goes to great lengths in his word, to stress the importance of giving your life up and over to him now. God says through Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God says through Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. We just read this, right? Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. These are warnings here. God is telling us not to delay. 
When his message of salvation is presented, when the opportunity for redemption is made available, we are not to procrastinate spiritually. He wants us to respond now because tomorrow may never come. Well, we're going to learn in this chapter that we're going to look at this morning, in Acts chapter 24, you can turn your Bibles there now, that a man named Felix does not heed this warning. Felix has the opportunity to side with God's man and respond to God's message, and he passes on both. Now, I want you to notice he does not condemn God's man. He does not openly reject God's message, but he puts both off, and we'll learn that's just as bad. And though Felix's response is going to be our main focus this morning, let's begin by examining this trial that Luke records for us here in Acts chapter 24 that leads to Felix's response concerning Paul and concerning the gospel message. And before we get into this trial, let me give you a brief, brief word of review because we've been reviewing as we've been going along. But some of you may be wondering what trial I'm talking about here. Well, last week, we left Paul in Caesarea. We're just preaching through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And last week, we were in the previous passage, and we left Paul in Caesarea. There was a murder plot while Paul was in Jerusalem. The Jews had gotten together, and they were going to ambush Paul and kill him. And the Romans find out about that, and they did not want Paul to die on their watch because Paul was a Roman citizen. And so they take Paul, they get him out of town by night, they send him up the road to Caesarea to be with Felix under his watchful eye. Felix was the Roman ruler at this time over Judea. And Paul makes it safely to Caesarea and is put up in one of Herod's palaces. We talked last week as we looked at God's providence that God takes care of his apostle and he puts him up in Herod's palace as he awaits another trial with the Jewish religious leaders before Felix in Caesarea. And that's where we are today. And we're going to examine this trial here and because in most of this chapter, Luke just records this trial for us. You're going to see that this chapter divides up nicely into three parts. We first have the prosecution, then we have the defense, then we have the ruling. Okay, so that's how it divides up, just like a trial would. The prosecution, the defense, and the ruling. Let's begin by looking at the prosecution of Tertullus. The prosecution of Tertullus, and many of you are probably wondering who on earth is Tertullus. Well, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 24, verse 1. Look at it with me. He says, and after five days, now five days after what? Well, five days after Paul had arrived in Caesarea, remember that, that's important, the, the uh, timeline here is important, we'll see why later on. But five days after that, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. So here we see who Tertullus is. He is acting as the prosecutor for the Jews, right? He is their smooth-talking attorney. And notice how he begins. He says, since you, Felix, since through you, Felix, 
We enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Boy, he is really laying it on thick, isn't he? What's he doing here? He's buttering Felix up, right? Now, it's important for us to note that Felix was not a great guy. He was not. When you read beyond the Bible and the history books, there is hardly anything good said of Felix. The Jews were not crazy about him. They just needed something from him, which is probably why they got this smooth-talking guy named Tertullus to speak for them, because they probably couldn't have said these words and kept a straight face. So they got Tertullus to do it. And he just fills Felix's head with a bunch of vain flattery so he could get what he wanted he says through you we have enjoyed much peace which certainly was not true history tells us that Felix was in fact an oppressive ruler who was not at all to blame for the peace throughout the Roman Empire Tertullus continues on by saying by your foresight most excellent Felix reforms are being made for this nation again something that Felix had nothing to do with he says you have done so much and in every way everywhere we are thankful now look at verse 4 but to detain you no further he's moving from flattery into this charge against Paul here he says we don't want to waste your precious time here Felix Tertullus says, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, verse 5. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague. A better translation is a troublemaker, an agitator. Paul's just a pain in the neck. That's what they're saying. And then he explains why, and he brings a couple of accusations against Paul, and you have these in your notes. First, he accuses him of being an enemy of Rome. He's an enemy of Rome. That's the uh, first bullet point. Look at verse 5. For we have found this man Paul a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, I want you to notice something here. If the Jews could really convince Felix of this, they might really have something. For a while now, we've been talking about the fact that the Romans really desired, they strived to maintain peace within the empire. They believed that if people remained peaceful and happy, the empire would remain strong. They did not like things getting stirred up for no good reason. So Tertullus is trying to paint Paul as a troublemaker throughout the empire, as one who stirs up riots. And notice how general he is. He says he stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Now there's no way he could really prove that, right? Because you would have to go everywhere and talk to every Jew all over the known world. Why is Tertullus being so general here? Well, we know that if he did do some digging, he could find Paul tied to a few riots, right? Now, we know that the Jews often stirred those up, and there were some Gentiles in Ephesus and elsewhere who stirred up riots against Paul. But Tertullus avoids specifics here, and we're not told why, but it could have been one of two reasons. One, he didn't know of any that he could mention. Two was, if he did mention a specific riot, Paul may be sent somewhere else out of 
Felix's jurisdiction to be tried there. And they think they have Paul right where they want him. So he just keeps it really general and, and really he has nothing. And what we're going to find as we move on as they deal with Felix and Festus next week, the next ruler that takes over in Judea, what they're really wanting is for those guys just to kind of throw them a bone do him a favor, give Paul back to them. So Tertullus says he's, he's an enemy of Rome. Then he moves on to his next charge. He charges Paul with being an enemy of the Jewish people. He says this, he says, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now this is very, very interesting. He refers to Paul here as belonging to the Nazarenes. This was a derogatory term at this time. They referred to Jesus as a Nazarene, which he was. And here we learn that they refer to Jesus' followers as Nazarenes as well. Now, Paul wasn't a Nazarene, right, by birth. He was, he was born in Tarsus. But because of his association with Jesus the Nazarene, they referred to them as Nazarenes. And that doesn't really mean a whole lot to us today because, you know, we actually have a Nazarene denomination, right? We don't look at that as being a derogatory term. But in this day, this term was used in the negative. In this day, the Jewish religious leaders looked down on people from Nazareth. Nazareth was hick town. To think that the Messiah would come from the hick town of Nazareth was just unimaginable to them. So Tertullus calls him a Nazarene, which was a term of disrespect, of disdain. Tertullus says he's a part of this crazy, backwoods, messianic group. He's a big troublemaker and is an enemy to the Jews, stirring up trouble wherever he goes. That's basically what he's saying. They accused Paul of being anti-Jewish as well. They said he was an enemy of the Jewish people of Moses, of the Jewish laws, the Jewish temple, and an ultimately an enemy of God himself. Now, why would this matter to Felix? Why would Felix care? Well, it's very simple. Because he was the leader, the Roman leader over Judea. And the Jews were a large population in Judea. So Tertullus is hoping that if he can really paint Paul as an enemy of all the Jews, then he'll become Felix's problem and Felix will deal with it. You see where he's going, right? Look at verses 6 through 9. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Verse 8. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now, you'll notice, if you have the ESV Bible, that a part of verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8 are left out of the ESV Bible. Maybe you have a Bible that has those verses included, but maybe it has a note beside it that says that these verses were not found in the earliest manuscripts. You may, you may have those verses, but that note there. Some argue that these verses should be left in. Some argue they should be left out. I'll read those verses to you because there's really nothing of what was included later that was untrue, and it doesn't change the overall meaning of the passage. It says this. This is from the Holman Christian Standard Version of the Bible. Verse 6. Paul even tried to desecrate the temple, 
So we apprehended him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But Lysias, remember he was the tribune, the commander of a thousand Roman soldiers in, in Jerusalem. The commander came and took him from our hands with great force, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you will be able to discern all these things we are accusing him of. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were so. So Tertullus is just talking about how Paul was being tried in Jerusalem for desecrating their temple. Remember, he was charged with bringing a Gentile named Trophimus into a restricted Jewish-only area of the temple. And Tertullus says, you can ask Paul. He'll tell you that he's being charged with this. Or if verses 6 through 8 are meant to be included, he could be referring to Lysias. You can talk to Lysias, this, this tribune in Rome, and, and he will tell you the same thing. Now, we've talked about over the past few weeks in here that Paul was innocent of this charge. He had not brought Trophimus into a restricted Jewish-only area of the temple. This was a false charge that was brought against him, but it was his word against the Jews, right? And he would have to admit that that was what he was accused of. That's what he was being accused of here. Claudius Lysias, the, the, the Roman leader in Jerusalem, had also sent a letter to Felix by way of Paul affirming this. He lets Felix know. Paul is being accused about questions of their law, the Jewish law. So these are the charges that were brought against Paul. The prosecution accused him of being an enemy of Rome and an enemy of the Jewish people. They believed Paul to be a troublemaker, a rebel rouser, the ringleader of this group of unruly Nazarenes who were st stirring up trouble throughout the empire. So that's the prosecution. Now let's look at the defense of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 10. This is great. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, to Paul to speak, Paul replied. Here's Paul's defense. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now what is Paul doing? Is Paul doing what Tertullus did? Is he speaking lies to butter Felix up? No, he's stating the facts. Felix, you have been judged for a long time, and you have sat under your fair share of trials like this. So I cheerfully make my defense before you and trust that you will make a fair evaluation, which we'll find here in just a moment that Paul was right. He does. Look at verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. He says it's only been 12 days since I first went up to Jerusalem. We know that Paul's been in Caesarea five days, right? We learned that just a minute ago. That gives him seven days in Jerusalem. He spent three of those days in Roman custody in Fort Antonia. And remember before that, he was spending his time proving himself to the Jewish Christians that he was not anti-Jewish by carrying out this Nazarite vow. So he appeals to this timeline here to say, I really haven't had time to lead a rebellion and stir up a riot in Jerusalem. He says in verse 12, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. 
He says, when they found me, I was not disputing with anyone in the temple or in the synagogues of the city. Now, this couldn't always be said of Paul, right? Those of y'all that know, who've been through this study, you know in other places, Paul did go into the synagogues to debate and share Christ with them, but he didn't do that in Jerusalem. And the reason why is that's not the reason he went to Jerusalem. There was a healthy church there led by the brother of Jesus, James, that was thriving and making an impact. And the reason why Paul went to Jerusalem was to bring this offering, this relief to the Jewish brothers, his Jewish brothers in Christ there, and also for the purpose of strengthening the bond between the Jew and, and Gentile believers, okay? So Paul defends himself against these charges. He said, they did not find me stirring up trouble in the temple or in any of the synagogues or anywhere in the city. He also defends himself against these charges made about him desecrating the temple. Look at what he says, verse 13. He simply says, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Paul gives a very simple defense here. He says, they don't have proof. Listen, if you don't have proof, you got nothing. Brett, am I right here? Our lawyer in the room? I don't know much about law, but I know that, right? If you don't have proof, you don't have anything. They had no proof, and the reason why is because Paul didn't do it. He didn't do it. He, he hadn't brought Trophimus into this restricted Jewish-only area of the temple. He hadn't violated their laws. He was innocent. So he is defending himself here, and he continues to do this while at the same time, I love this, he is bringing accusations against them. Paul, in classic Paul fashion, brings these charges back around against them. They were basically calling Paul a heretic, saying that he was this ringleader of this heretical subset of, of Judaism. The Nazarenes is what they called them. But look at what Paul says. Look at verse 14. He says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Whose fathers? Our fathers, the Jewish fathers. He says, I worship the God of our, our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. This is great here. Look, Paul basically calls them, the Jews, the heretics. He admits to being a Christian. Notice he, he says that he is a part of the way. Remember, that's how they referred to Christians in this day because Christians taught that Jesus was the only way to salvation. The reason why they taught that is because Jesus taught that. Paul admits he is a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, but notice that he argues that the Christian faith is the true faith. He basically says here, I am a follower and worshiper of Jesus, and though they label us as a heretical group, our worship, our beliefs, our teachings are in line with God and his word. He says we're the ones who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're the ones who believe and teach everything God recorded in the law and through his prophets because God's law and his prophets point toward God's man, God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and the great work that he came to do. That's what Paul's saying. He says, so we're the ones who worship with our Jewish fathers. Because we worship the God of our fathers. The God who has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. 
And also because he had Sadducees in the crowd, who remember we said they were the liberal sect of, of the Jews who did not believe in the resurrection. Paul says to Felix, but he also directs this toward them as well. Look at verse 15. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, their Jewish fathers he's talking about, accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul says, I'm not a heretic. My brothers and sisters in Christ are no heretics because we have hope in the resurrection. We have hope that we are going to be raised because Christ, the Messiah, has been raised and we are trusting in him alone for salvation. And notice he also makes mention of the resurrection of the unjust. We could spend an entire sermon just on that passage alone. That's not the main focus here of Luke, but there is going to be a resurrection of the unjust to eternal torment as well. The Bible clearly teaches that. Paul says our fathers before us taught about and looked forward to the resurrection, so do we. The Sadducees did not, and they actually rejected most of the teachings in the Old Testament. So Paul is really making the case here that they are, they are the heretics. He says in verse 16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God, toward both God and man. Paul says here, in light of what I've just said, in light of what I believe, in light of the work that God has done in me to save me, he says, I live differently. He says, I, I strive. I take great pains always to live in light of these truths and to strive to have a clear conscience toward God and man. In verses 17 through 18, Paul defends himself again against the charges of desecrating the temple. And he does it by simply telling the truth of why he came to Jerusalem and what they found him doing in the temple. He says, now after several years, I came to bring alms. He came to bring financial support, right, to the Jewish brothers. He came to present offerings, verse 18. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. Remember, he was participating in a Nazarite vow to show his Jewish brothers in Christ that he was not an enemy of Moses. He was not anti-Jewish. He says, without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, verse 19, they ought to be here. They're not even there. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. He, he says here, I came to bring financial relief to my Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And when I was found in the temple, I was not taking part in desecrating the temple. They found me purified in the temple. I was not violating Jewish law, stirring up a riot. I was abiding by Jewish law for the purpose of reconciliation with my Jewish brothers. He says, some Jews from Asia made these false claims about me, and where are they? They're not even here. They're not standing before you, Felix, to make any accusations. Now, he does admit one thing. Look at verse 21. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So he does admit that one statement. We've already talked about it that he made 
when he was standing before the religious leaders, when he talked about the resurrection of the dead, that got the Sadducees upset and split the crowd, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the crowd became violent, right? But if this was a crime, then the Pharisees should be standing before Felix as well, right? Because that's what they believed and taught in the synagogues and in the temple throughout Jerusalem. So Paul, as he always did, he handled himself very well by simply doing this, by telling the truth and remaining faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And believers, that should be our response when we encounter opposition as well. We have said many times already, especially in this study, that we should be encountering opposition for our faith. We shouldn't look for it. But we should know that when we're faithfully doing what God has called for us to do and faithfully proclaiming this message, we're going to collide with the world because this message, the message of the Lord Jesus, goes counter to the world's message. And when we do, when opposition comes, we must respond like Paul and make a defense based upon what is true and we must remain faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what. That's a great application for us. Isn't, it? Isn't that great application? That's great takeaway, a great example that Paul gives us here. Well, we've looked at the prosecution of Tertullus. We've looked at the defense of the apostle Paul. Now let's look at the ruling of Felix. The ruling of Felix. Look at verses 22 through 23. But Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, underline that, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And we have no record that that ever happened. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion, centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So what does Felix do? He doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. He, he rides the fence. Felix, being governor of Judea and living in Caesarea, he was well acquainted with Christianity. And you get the hint that he, he kind of sides with Paul a bit and is kind of leaning toward that just a bit. He's a bit partial to Paul, but he does not want to upset the Jewish religious leaders, so he does nothing. He keeps Paul in custody, but he also gives him some liberty and allows some of Paul's friends to meet his needs. So that's Felix's ruling. He puts the decision off. And we also learn at the end of this passage that because Felix has Paul in custody for a couple of years, Paul visits him regularly, and he hears a lot more from Paul concerning the gospel. And his response personally to the gospel, Felix's response personally to the gospel, is the same as his response legally to Paul. I want you to see this. Look at verses 24 through 27. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't care where he is. He's remaining faithful, right? Do you see that? Speak about faith in Christ Jesus, verse 25. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
So we, we see here that Paul made an impression on Felix. After a, a few days, he sent for him, and he had his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish with them, probably said to her, you've got to hear this guy. You know, you being Jewish, you've got to hear from this Jew. He's like no other Jewish man I ever met. I bet Paul was like no other Jew, right? And Paul, as he always was, he remained faithful to the Lord Jesus. He was a faithful witness, and he shares Christ with them. Notice that he talks about faith in Christ Jesus, and he talks about righteousness and sin and the coming judgment. This message, folks, had it all. Listen, believers, when you share the gospel, you must always make the point to make the point that God is righteous, Man is sinful. Christ is Savior. A response is necessary because judgment is coming. Paul did. And again, what's Felix's response? Do you see it? Nothing. Nothing. He, he doesn't respond one way or another. He told, we're told here that he was alarmed by what Paul shared. But in response, he tells Paul to go away for now. And he says, when the right time comes, I will call for you when the right time comes i will hear more on this and give you a response and guess what we have no indication that the right time ever came for felix what a tragedy what a tragedy well we do see something at the end of this passage that will force a response from felix it's very telling which shows us where his heart is look at verse 26 at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Felix knew that Paul had connections all over the known world and had brought quite a bit of money with him to Jerusalem and was probably hoping that some would be sent to Paul to give to Felix for being so kind to Paul and maybe in hopes of letting him go. So we know that power influenced Felix, right? And we know that money does as well, but nothing else moved him into verse 26 and 27 so he sent for him often he sent for paul often and he conversed with them when two years had elapsed felix was succeeded by portius festus we'll talk about paul with festus next week and desiring to do the jews a favor felix left paul in prison felix's story is extremely sad he was a corrupt, power-hungry leader who was mastered by material things. And though he had heard the gospel from Paul's mouth and had probably seen the gospel displayed time and time again through the apostle Paul, he postponed his response saying he was going to listen later and respond at another time. And again, we get the idea that that time never came for Felix. And folks, I guarantee you, what happened with Felix has happened and is happening today, possibly with some of you in here. I'm convinced that there are some coming here this morning, maybe who come each and every week, who are putting off this decision. They're holding on to what they have. Maybe this is you. Though you have heard God's gospel message preached again and again, you've put off responding in one way or another. Maybe you're here, and you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Though you've thought about it, you have put it off. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to do it someday. 
when the time is just right. Listen to me when I say this. That's exactly how the enemy wants you to think. He wants you to postpone. He wants you to put it off and say, I will give my life to you later, Lord, when the time is right. You know how I know that that's the enemy talking? Because God says the exact opposite in his word. He says, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. He says, seek me while I may be found. Call upon me while I am near. Forsake your ways. Forsake your thoughts. Return to me that I may have compassion on you and save you. Those are God's words to us. That's God's word to you. If you're here today, you have not given your life up and over to Jesus. Now is the time. Do it today. Don't delay. Let's pray.